Good afternoon, welcome to Navara FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Mastani, at Aaron Mastani on Twitter, and I'm joined in the studio today by senior editor of Navara Media, James Butler at Pierce Penniless, founder of Red Pepper Magazine, Hilary Wainwright at Hilary Pepper, and host of The Fix, a great new studio show only on Navara Media, Michael Walker at Michael J.S. Walker. A warm welcome to all of you guys, great to have you on. On September 12th last year, Jeremy Corbyn won an overwhelming mandate to be the new leader of the Labour Party. We're coming up to the sixth month mark of that audacious and unanticipated win. On today's show, we'll ask what the prospects for victory are in four years' time, whether a 1983-style defeat is possible and what the consequences might be in regard to either outcome for Britain's political culture and public attitudes more generally. James, I'll start with you. How has the first six months of the Corbyn leadership gone? Are you generally impressed or underwhelmed? Um, you know how I just like answering questions like this in binaries, so I won't. And what I will say is that there have been moments over the, the beginning of the Corbyn leadership where I felt, I don't know if you ever heard that story from inside the Miliband campaign where a, a media advisor was sort of sitting at his computer and sort of then just walked to the middle of the room and started screaming, um, having seen news of the Edstone, the, uh, the the huge monolith with these various promises, uh, I felt like that occasionally in the beginning of the, the Corbyn ministry. But it hasn't hasn't all been like that, and uh, I, I think uh, I think that's uh, that's that's particularly true given the uh, uh, the embattled nature of the leadership, and I think that's that's important to remember when making any assessment. Now. We said not long after Corbyn won that the six-month period would be, you know, his settling-in period, and it would probably be clear by the end of that point whether he was going to make it, whether he was going to be able to defeat or at least keep at bay the right of the party uh, and whether he'd reached a settlement with the media. I think it's actually less clear um, than I thought it would be by this point. One of the things I I, I would say is that um, uh, the challenges to his leadership will start occurring possibly after this May. Uh, It's worth noting that uh, Dan Jarvis, who is talked of perennially as a sort of leadership challenger, he's sort of a kind of more right-wing Miliband, but with a gun, he's been a soldier and all of this kind of thing. Uh, The ideal sort of Blairite candidate in many ways. Um, the hedge fund manager, Martin Taylor, uh, if you look at the, the updated list of members' interests, the hedge fund manager, Martin Taylor, has given him uh, £16,800 this February, and that's to pay for a second staffer in his office. And this would be an indication of a, a, you know, thinking about uh, his, his positioning politically. So, th- so that stuff is there. That stuff inside the party is there. Um, some of it's been a bit all over the place. That's that you know. Um, there's there's a sense on one hand that there's a major opportunity for the British left here in the way that there hasn't been for decades. Um, the other sense is that maybe it's slipping away a little bit. Um, that there have been some errors. That there have been some some things going wrong. Um, there are good things. Um, I, a lot of McDonald's openness to advice. His sort of appointment of this economics panel is interesting. Um, there is perhaps a, a lack of policy clarity. Um, the question of seriousness is 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 ever at hand, uh, and and a lot of that is a battle with the media itself about the the kind of uh, conventional definitions of what is acceptable in terms of policy making. That's an uphill hill battle, but should, I, I I assume these people <laughs> knew that it would be. Um, the other thing I would say here is the major question. The major question for those of us who are interested in social movements, social movements. You know, outside of the Labour Party or, or, or you know, beyond it or, or you know, more widely, uh, the question is about momentum. 
which of course on the one hand could be key to securing uh, the members' will within the party. You know, it's often thought of by sitting MPs as a bit of a threat or sort of simply an unknown. Uh, and also in terms of re-energizing Labour's ground game, as, as they say, uh, you know, its presence within communities and its relationship to struggles that have pretty much been not at the focus of, of, of Labour's you know, attention, its policy attention or its local attention. And I'm sure we'll get on to discuss momentum and its relationship between social movements and electoral forms and stuff like that. But but that that to me is is the really big question. There are really big questions there about its sort of democracy, internal democracy, democratic structure, uh, and so on. So so yeah, I mean there's a, there's a lot more to talk about here. The question of the way in which uh, you know whether uh, Corbyn's approach to, to policy making is being a little bit led by the government here. The question of how he's dealt with Trident stuff like that. Um, his focus, you know, Corbyn thinks of himself historically as a specialist in, in foreign policy. Um, actually, I think his real strength is on domestic policy, is, is, is on policy here, is, is, is on uh, countering sort of conventional economic narratives in talking about, you know, new social democratic settlements, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so, so that stuff is also a question here. And, and that, that, that's really a question of political strategy and, 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 and what that looks like now over the course of the next year, maybe, um, what it's going to look like in May, uh, what it's going to look like uh, coming up to 2020, whether he's even going to last that long. Hilary, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I distinguish between the very specific about his position in the Labour Party and then I want to look at the wider context that he's living in because I don't, or not, not living, but leading in, um, because I think it's not business as normal. Politics isn't business as normal at the moment. I think his position in the Labour Party is actually quite strong. I mean, in contrast to what the press, if you just if you came in from Mars, as it were, and just read the press, you'd think, my God, he's going to go any minute. But actually, his position in the Labour Party is not only strong, it's got stronger and stronger. And really, there's very little chance that he could be effectively challenged because we've got to remember and keep re- reminding people that he was elected by the members and the supporters of the Labour Party and support amongst those constituencies has has grown throughout his leadership. So in that sense, he's much stronger. And I think whoever it is, Jarvis, I don't really take much interest because I think they've got absolutely no chance if any of them tried to compete with Jeremy in a membership election, which is what it would have to be. Um, he would, you know, win hands down. But would he get on the ballot? I mean, that's the question, right? He wouldn't get those thirty signatures to get on the ballot in the but first place. Yeah, I think automatically. On is the that ballot. how it works? Yes. I've been yeah. told. I've been told. Go on. You've got a point here, Michael. It's it's an unclear rule. Mm. There's big battles over but making th- that explicit yes. whether you do automatically get on it or not. And actually, I think he's one. You know, just talking to people, as it were, beneath the radar. You know, there are a lot of MPs who have not necessarily been with him all along, who who now support him. You know, so I think he's he's not broken the the right. Who are so shocked and so <laughs> so angry. It's like a lo- kind of complete shaking of their life's dreams that he won. So they're now going to devote what's left of their lives to destroying him, and he's not broken that, and it's not likely to. But he has won a lot of people you know, in the middle, as it were. So I think he'd get onto the ballot if if that was how the rule turned out. But I think there's a wider picture, which is that he's, he's leading in a context of, firstly, um, a discredited political system. So it's not, you know, as I was saying, business as usual in terms of, you know, all the features of the British system, unified 
union, you know, uh, um, a political class that's got some, um, you know, acceptability amongst the population, um, all these kind of normal features of the British system, acceptance of the um, electoral um, system and so on. Um, that's no longer the case. His victory was not about the Labour Party. It was actually the claim to remake politics. It was about the new politics. Um, and and that's, you know, that on that front, he has, with John Trickett, he's beginning to make considerable advances. This whole idea of a constitutional convention is going to get underway. Probably it'll be uh, happening in autumn and a lot of work's been done to bring other parties on board uh, and so on. And I think this theme of allying with others is a cru crucial aspect of his, his success on several fronts. The other success is in, well, the other aspect of the crisis is is the financial crisis, which has now been or has been ever since, you know, Blair and then the Tories turned uh, against the ordinary people and their, their living standards. And I think he and John McDonnell made a very good start by at the first party conference where he was a leader, defining the party as the anti-austerity party. And then um, with this sort of advisory group, um, making it clear that he was about a different kind of economic strategy. We can discuss later whether he's got everything in place, what we think of it. And, you know, I've got criticisms and so on. And it's an open, it's a bit of a debate. But he's made a very clear stand against austerity, therefore, in a way, imposing on himself the discipline and John McDonnell and the party and everybody on the left to develop an alternative economic strategy. And then the third dimension of his context, as it were, is almost paradoxically, or at least it's a kind of big problem, a weakened labour movement. So a labour movement that's been defeated on many fronts by Thatcher, um, that's been eroded by changes, you know, by the whole growth of precarious casual labour, you know, decline of the trade union movement. So actually the instrument, the political instrument through which he's tackling these bigger crises is itself... I wouldn't say a broken reed, but it is certainly inadequate for the task. And so there, the question of how he rethinks in practice political agency, the political agency of the left, is crucial. And I think, you know, that momentum is one part of that. And I think the dynamic of momentum, we'll come on to it in more detail, but I think is hopeful because what's happened is that the energies, particularly of young people like Michael here, well, like all of you, you know, I'm an ancient granny, but, um, you know, the, all the young people that that tried to climb into the windows of his rallies or, you know, that generally, you know, were behind him and organising. You were at Islington sort of going out to his bedroom window, Michael, you took it a step too far, I but think. You encouraged it. No, no, I'm joking. Anyway, it was, a, it was a, an incredible phenomenon, this... You know, 67-year-old, okay, full of life and energy and commitment, but being supported by, you know, the whole new generation of, of activists who, you know, uh, come from outside parliamentary politics and who are not going to automatically join the Labour Party or, bec or, or put their energies into the Labour Party institutions. And the big question for momentum is, was it going to harness that in a new way with a new kind of uncertain and hybrid form of organisation that we'd all have to shape as, as, as we developed it in response to needs? Or was it going to be a, 
uh, a second attempt at the inner Labour Party struggle of the of the eighties, and I think it's already clear that the dynamic is in the first direction. That in a way, the energies and wishes of those younger people are beginning to shape the 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 future of momentum and shape it as an institution that reaches outside the party and tries to also win the arguments and this would be Jeremy's strength for for the possibility of winning the election if he can through the kind of wider support he has actually win the argument in society uh, not just in the Labour Party and that's where Trident is obviously a, a key test and I think you know on the one hand he's as on many issues other issues he's stood very firm um, and I think the other dimension to it is that he's been open to alliances you know he was there on the demonstration against trident against all pressures many pressures including from his own in his own team not to be there he was there confidently and and enthusiastically there and he was there alongside nicola sturgeon from the smp and caroline lucas from the um, green party and mark sorotka from the pcs ended his speech by saying look you know, the, the leaders, the majority of leaders of opposition parties are against Trident. So we're going to be going to the election with the majority of party leaders against Trident. And I think that's a sort of signal of how Jeremy's going to win. It's through building alliances, both on Trident, on the constitutional issues and on anti-austerity. And I think he's already shown that his previous non-sectarian ethos is being carried against the odds of a very tribal party uh, into into being leader. And I think that's going to be difficult, but is is going to be a key test. Michael? I think to start on the obvious positive, he's still there, which, and just him being there is improving British politics in a way, if we imagine one of the other leadership candidates got in. What I imagined, what everyone imagined after the last election was we'd be witnessing a Labour Party competing with the Tories to scapegoat migrants and scapegoat benefit claimants. That's not happening. Um, and the longer Jeremy Corbyn's leader of the Labour Party, the longer that won't happen. And potentially it will take a while to return to that comfort zone of the Labour right. I think also in terms of well, why he is there is I think he's actually played the politics inside the Labour Party quite well in there was a lot of critique of he shouldn't have ruled out mandatory reselection at the beginning. But I think that was a good idea. I think pick your battles. And also he has, while saying explicitly, I'm against mandatory reselection, what he has done is there's the spectre of deselection. So you can see the MPs are on their toes. That's what launching momentum, which has had its hiccups along the way. But that also launched this spectre. And it has shown that that does have some potential to... In the political agenda of the government. I mean, you know, the changing of the boundaries is going to mean that deselect or not de but reselection comes up mm -hmm. anyway, you know, outside of the decisions of the Labour Party. You and and as you say, I mean MPs must be kind of aware of that. Well the Syria vote was the mm. case in point, right, where mm. he did he managed to utilise that pressure from the members quite well without ever saying that's what he was doing. And that I think he played that quite well. Um also, there's some key there's some key positions they've taken, which, as well as being the right ones, have proved to be electorally useful. I think that another leader of the Labour Party wouldn't have adopted the case in point being the junior doctors. So you can imagine if 
Ed Miliband was leader still or any of the other candidates, we'd have a Labour Party saying, yes, the Tories are messing this up, but the doctors are still wrong to strike and everyone needs to get back round the table. And that sort of triangulation in that moment would have would have been a much weaker position for the Labour Party to be in. And in fact, now they find themselves on the right side of public opinion in a national fight over the NHS, which can unite trade union struggles and the struggle for public services. So I think on that sense, they've played that quite well. I think on the negative sense, and I hate to repeat the critique of the Labour right, but I think Corbyn hasn't done enough to, to prove that he's not just offering a politics of protest. Um, if you look at the priorities he chooses, what he chooses to campaign on, none of them seem like they're where he's made a strategic decision that you can create a cleavage here, you can create an electoral constituency based on these issues. He seems to choose them based on what he's campaigned on for the last 40 years. Well, right? That's what it seems to me anyway, right? <laughs> well, it's, well, the only way they're united is that they're traditional left-wing campaigns. Mm. And you get that in his speeches. So at the CND speech, and at most of his speeches, all he talks about is the history of a left-wing movement. And it's like, no one cares, mate. <laughs> Do you know? You, you want to, you want and it's not, it's not done all that well the last couple of decades, right? <laughs> well, it's right? not done so... that well, yeah. Well, the, one other problem with the Corbyn phenomenon is I think it's given some people on the old traditional left the idea that their theories they've had all this time, that what you need is an honest Labour Party that speaks the truth, that says we're left-wing and proud and talks in sort of like ethical language. If we just do that purely enough, we'll win. And Jeremy Corbyn's leadership election was seen as evidence of that. And it's like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, let's just keep doing what we were doing because everyone told us we were wrong for 30 years, but obviously now we've proved them wrong. And so I think... Uh, that's leading to a certain amount of complacency. This leads to my next question, which is what do you think the Corbyn strategy is right now? What should it be? But that'll probably be the one after that question. For forming a government in four years' time, it'll be in 2020, the next general election. Because what's clear, and this is really borne out in the data, is that the Tories won the last election because they persuaded most unsure Lib Dems and UKIP voters that a Labour-SNP coalition was dangerous. So 83% of undecided voters swaying towards the Lib Dems and UKIP, 83% of them, were, you know, in the end, it worked out they voted Conservative. And that was actually the path through which the Conservatives won that majority. Nobody saw it coming. I said it was impossible. Their own you know, all the pollsters said it was impossible. The top, the top, the top boy at Ipsos Mori saw that exit poll come out at 10 p.m. Apparently, he said, "Oh f," you know, <laughs> it, it discredited the entire sort of polling uh, establishment in this country. It actually discredited the media to some extent because their story in the days running up to the election was, "It'll be a hung parliament, won't it?" What then? And they were completely wrong. Yeah. And actually, that news cycle was so informed by polling, which was incorrect, that that was problematic. So. This is the main point. I really want to dwell on this a little bit as the show progresses. That's what destroyed Miliband. But you could say, and, um, just one little addition. Our, uh, not our, sorry, Miliband um, simply echoed the attack on the SNP of Cameron. So he, he didn't have a different... He, he didn't to. have a different... He, no, he could have he, he done... He felt we had to. Well, he, yeah, but the he was wrong. It was because, too late. It was a well, week before the election. But he could have done a real knight's move and said, look... You know, Britain is is breaking up. We want it not to break up. We want a federal Britain, which 
pays attention to the needs of people in England. Sure. And he could have undercut the UKIP. Sure, but uh, Labour made the choice the previous year to effectively sacrifice themselves to keep the union, right? Because they were fronting the, you know, don't leave the union thing. Sure. They sacrificed themselves. And I think the second they'd done that, it was pretty obvious they couldn't really make the argument anymore. I don't disagree with you. I think it's plausible, alternate reality, and Miliband would have done that. He didn't do it until the last week of the election. By then, it's far too late, you know. The Tories only focused on about 15% of the electorate. They were pumping £100,000 a month on Facebook advertising for six months ahead of the last general election, you know. Direct mail, four, five, six letters to people that were undecided, these particular people, micro-targeting like never seen seen before in, in British politics. So the question is this. I'll go back to you, James. It seems to me the British public's actually not that keen on, on pluralism. It's not that keen on coalition government. And the path, I, this is not the politics I like, right? I want PR. I think coalition governments are much better than what we have, right? I like pluralism. But if, you know, somebody like a McBride was in charge of Labour strategy, right, they'd say, you know what, we're going to nail the SNP, right? We're going to nail what we can of remaining Lib Dem seats. By the way, the Tories could win four or five of those in four years' time. Right, they only didn't last time round because they just didn't have the money to win all of them. You know, how do you win those seats? How do you get 10, 15 seats back off the SNP? You go to Scotland, big time, right? And you say, vote SNP, get the Tories. That's the truth, by the way. That's how they're going to win or stop the Tories getting a majority, isn't it, surely? Rather than say, we're going to work with the SNP, we're going to work with the Greens, you have to say, vote for the Greens, a vote for the SNP, it's a vote for the Tories. Maybe at the same time, Privately, you can do deals. You say we won't contest certain seats and so on and so forth. But publicly, it seems the British public doesn't have much truck with this pluralist agenda. Or am I wrong, James? Well, um, I, don't, I, I, I think it's impossible to say whether you're wrong or right because it's never actually been tried, right? I mean, it hasn't been tried. hasn't been tried electorally. Um, not from the left. And the coalition, the only coalition government that we've had in living memory has been... Uh, a function of necessity rather than uh, organisation and uh, and desire. So who knows? Um, two things. One, uh, I think you're you're right, and it's interesting because you talk about polling, and polling not so great for Jeremy Corbyn actually, really. Um, the, but the polling you talk about, the electoral polling in advance of the last election, tells us something. Um, and it feeds into your point about advertising and about digital strategies and things like this as well. It tells us that the way in which people approach politics and the way in which people get their information is changing. Uh, and that means that the traditional feedback loops by which uh, political formations judge how their message is coming across don't seem to be working as well. And and that that throws us all for a loop, actually. Like, we, we really, we, we actually, there's there's a lot of stuff that we now don't know. Uh, and that that is interesting. And these polling companies are working on doing better on this, in, incidentally. Um, but the the you know, in a sense here, this also is a question about Labour's vision. Um, and Michael, I, I think you're right to say that uh, there is a strand uh, to to Corbyn's sort of policy instinct that is uh, that comes out of sort of diverse protest movements and just sort of tries to mash them together into a position. Now. What we know, and what we know quite clearly, is that the left tends to win elections when it has a vision for the future, and when it has a vision to which it can get people uh, moving. Um, one of the things that's curious about the, the Corbyn phenomenon is, is precisely that there, there is this kind of upsurge of sort of youth 
uh, engagement, that there is, uh, on the one hand, this kind of strand of intellectual activity that's dealing with a, a kind of new, new left that is trying to think about technological change, that is trying to think about what, uh, you know, what, what, what the world looks like now. Um, uh, but it's also joined to quite an old series of political forms, um, of which kind of Corbyn is a product, right? I mean, he has been really, really kind of traditional old Labour left for for a long time. Uh, he, you know, the, it's also wedded to kind of heavily, heavily trade union oriented, um, quite localist, a little bit nostalgic. Um, so those two, those two forces, you know, need to reach a synthesis really to to. Uh, and incidentally, this 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 does play in terms of kind of political strategy. Um, you know the, the 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 instincts here, the instincts in the team around Corbyn, the instincts in the team that comes out of that that particularly kind of like slightly older, slightly you know people who have survived, you know decades of Blairism, people who have endured, you know uh, for for a long time within the Labour Party, have a bit of that kind of uh, party Cold War attitude going on, and it's uh, it's not necessarily uh, uh, productive here. Um, so the, so the question in in that sense for me um, is, is about you know if I were advising the Labour Party, which I hasten to add, I'm not. Um, <laughs> no, just a, no. Just a matter no. of PwC funding, I'm sure. <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, funding will come on to funding. It's yeah. a very, very important yeah. question for the Labour Party. Um, it is exactly how you how you uh, deal with this new political environment. Uh, and I think, I think it, you know, the Labour Party is curious in terms of like European socialist parties, European parties of the left, heavy, he- heavily, heavily sort of uh, formalized union links in a way that's not true of other European socialist parties. In a sense, that has made it actually clo- stay closer to its roots. It's, it's one of the things that you know, it took a long while for Blairism to work within Labour. Um, there is that structure still there. There's a lot of fondness for for the Labour Party on on the you know on the left. It also means that the Labour Party has a kind of full spectrum dominance of quite quite a lot of uh, you know quite a lot of you know the the really sort of powerful influential parts uh, uh, of the left and, and their institutions. So so how that then relates to this sort of emergent social movement and this you know the stuff that led into momentum, which is which is stuff that that has grown out of many many people trying to do left-wing politics outside of Labour or who have been involved in protest movements and who've come up against this question of, you know, how do you translate those individual political struggles into a wider political articulation? And, you know, I mean, if this leadership doesn't respond to this and sort of doesn't try to bring that together, doesn't try to do the vision thing, as the Americans say, um, then, then it really is doomed. Hilary? Yes, I agree with some of that. I mean, I think that his only chance of... Building on the possibilities of pluralism that are now in the existing system uh, is if he comes up with a positive alternative to union and the kinds of things that UKIP um, believe, the sort of Britishness, all this kind of business. And there, I mean, I think he has got the capacity to to think about a vision because although you know, he's focusing on lots of different diverse issues because, you know, they are... There's so many there, so many fronts to fight. But there is an underlying sort of ethos, I think, to his politics. I mean, we did a Red Pepper did an interview with him um, recently. And what comes out very clearly is this sort of belief in the capacities of the people. I can't quote things he said, but but that's different from traditional Labour. I don't think of him, and I've known him for quite a long time, 
of uh, as traditional Labour, even Labour left, because the thing about the Labour left and what they had in common with the Labour right was a certain kind of belief in the political class, in the state, being able to provide solutions, and a sort of almost, not contempt, but a, a paternalism towards, you know, ordinary working people. Now, I think, you know, that the, there are we talk about the older generation, and I can speak the older generation, but there were, there's like a split in the older generation. There's the older generation that was shaped by 1968, which I put myself and Jeremy and also Tony Benn in. And that was an experience that led us to see a glimpse of alternatives that came from below, from a a sort of notion of power as transformative capacity, people's transformative capacity, rather than from a belief in in the state. And that led Tony Benn to put the emphasis that he did on workers' control. And Jeremy was very much part of that. He worked with trade unions, and it's also a split in the unions. There's some aspects of the trade unions which are about organising from below, about the belief in the the knowledge, the tacit and practical knowledge of workers being able to develop alternatives. Uh, and then there's a more bureaucratic trade unionism simply holding on to its institutions. And I think it's really whether that, um, if you like, democratic left, but also productive left, I mean, left that believes in the productivity of the people um, to develop alternatives, it wins out. And that depends a lot on in, you know, initiatives like the Constitutional Convention, like a kind of approach to Trident, which is saying, you know, there are alternatives, let's involve workers in developing alternatives, a sort of opening up, which I think Jeremy does do. I mean, the other thing I didn't mention about the positive aspects of his leadership is that he goes out in this interview. He said, on Wednesday, I, I say, right, I'm going out of the office. So he spends half his week out of the office going around speaking to public meetings across the country. Public meetings which are huge, which are like the meetings he had during the campaign, absolutely, you know, full of you know, full to, to overflow of people who 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 not necessarily, you know, think he's a great, you know, demagogue or great sort of charismatic speaker, but just know he stands for something different and they want to hear about this. So he's got the platform to develop an alternative. And I think that there is amongst the population if you think about the kind of big cities of the UK, there are people who are completely, you know, pissed off with government as it is. I mean, with the centralised nature of government and who, if there was a real process of participation in developing a new political settlement, I think would be open to a more plural federal Britain. And, and it's really up to Jeremy to give a lead to that. Michael, four years time strategy, how do they win? Well, I suppose it's this phrasing it in terms of four years' time, because the SNP issue that you're saying lost in that election, that kicks in a month before the election. So we can we can predict what are they going to throw at us in whatever month I mean, it is that in 2020. The, that didn't exist the year before, right? If you said this will, will win the majority of the Tories, even Linton Crosby would say how, right? So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, I, I think we need to be prepared for those, but also whatever manoeuvre he has to make, whether that's making the population ready for pluralism, because I think you can prime people for that. Well, it's going to have to happen. I mean, well, it's going to happen, yeah. but what he, what he needs to do to be able to do that is to get himself some authority, get himself some notion that this guy's a serious guy who we wouldn't... Because to be honest, a lot of people in England would probably prefer to be governed by Nicola Sturgeon than Jeremy Corbyn at the moment. <laughs> but, in, I mean, in terms of the, the SNP question, I think 
the whole idea of he makes a deal with them in secret and attacks them in public is risky because it probably won't work. I mean, the SNP already have more than 50% support in Scotland, so it's going to be very hard to get those seats back. Also, secret negotiations aren't really needed because the SNP will make a deal with them straight away anyway. Not necessarily negotiations, but have well, a word. Well, like Salmond saying that I'll be setting Ed Miliband's budgets. Mm-hmm. They can't be saying things like this. It's just it plays the Conservatives massively, doesn't it? Well, what you could do, I mean, to prime that beforehand, you can say, Jeremy Corbyn can say, OK, we, we're, we're going to try win back Scotland because we're the real anti-austerity party. We're the real left-wing party. But given the fact that we have this electoral system and that it's quite unrealistic to suggest that the SNP aren't going to be a major force in Westminster, you spend four years, was well, not the main thing you do in this four years, but one thing you can do over this four years is get people used to the idea that a coalition between Labour and the SNP would be fine. And the way you might do that is pressure the SNP to guarantee they won't call for a referendum in the next five years, things like that. And then it's, if, if you give them these reasonable demands and then they publicly say no, then that's when you can maybe go hard because you can say the fact that you're playing hardball is playing into the Tories' hands. But you can, I think you could potentially do a, a kind of public, a public opening up to the SNP leadership to say we can work together on this. And if they reject that in hand, then, then you go hard. Mm. Here's a quote from Ken Livingston. Uh, first of March, there's the first. Look, some people on the hashtag saying James must be sighing so much given the content, <laughs> content of today's show. That's the first sigh. Ken Livingston. First audible sigh. <laughs> Here's the quote. This is from the Daily Politics. It was three days ago. It was on the 1st of March. Quote, Jeremy, like me, is not going to change his policies because of the Tory media and gradually will win the public support behind us. Now, for me, that quote is really emblematic of a certain kind of magical thinking, which looks at the kind of miraculous nature of the Corbyn victory last September. And um, without understanding the underlying dynamics, what was behind it presumes that it will be repeated, right? That happened because of a particular kind of electoral system, which didn't exist five years ago. It was because of digital media, which the people around Corbyn right now really aren't using at all. It was because there were three other candidates basically saying the same thing. You know, there's so many variables. You play that thing out a couple of other times. It, it's not. He was 200 to one for a reason. And there's this kind of, like I said, this magical thinking that just says, well, look, we did this miraculous thing, which it was. That was 200 to 1. Corbyn to be the next PM is, I don't know what, 6, 7 to 1. It's not 200 to 1, right? Well, we did that. Well, we can sure as hell do this. And I just think that's absurd because the Tories in 2010 ran a really Mickey Mouse campaign. You know, Steve Hilton, you will not get a bigger flake at the heart of a Tory machine than Steve Hilton, right? They tried that, the big society sort of stuff. They got nailed. People forget 2012, when he had to walk away, they were 10 points below the, the Labour Party in the polls, right? The, you know, the Omni Shambles budget. And if you'd had an election in 2012, I think, Ed Man probably would have got a majority actually, right? Fast forward three years, Linton Crosby comes on. They have the most, not just Crosby, Jim Messina, loads of very talented people. They have the most scientific campaign in British history. Mm. Now, the big picture of him changing public attitudes and all this stuff we're saying, I think we all agree on a lot here. But the nuts and bolts of how he's going to do this isn't really being addressed six months into this thing, right? He's behind the post. There doesn't seem to me a strategy, not just to win. There's no strategy about key messaging, 
policies, the kind of constituency electorally he would have to build, the frames to mobilise these people, how to make them recognise themselves as, as a discrete group within society with shared interests. What well, you may just call, like, this is the kind of these are the dynamics of populism, right? Mm. That doesn't seem to be there, James. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't disagree. One of the things to remember is, of course, you know, Linton Crosby and these people, they aren't, they're not wizards. Um, you know, they don't magically win elections. No, but they're the best in the world at what they yeah, do, yeah, right? Yeah, so you sure, have to have a plan at the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so some things. Uh, first, I think, to look at is, you know, and it's a thing <laughs> that I never expected, is there are 250,000 people in this country who will identify themselves as left-wing and line up and, you know, pay and, you know, not a, a bunch of money, but they will take the action to get involved to elect a Labour leader who is, you know, who has had... You know, every left wing, you know, red scare epithet flung at him um, by the right. Um, now, the danger of something like what Livingston is saying is is the idea, and I don't think it's an idea that can sustain an electoral project, is just that there is a, a massive right wing conspiracy in the media. And look, British media is right wing. You know, it, it really is. But. But it, it's it's not good enough to just go. Oh, we're being persecuted, or you know, this is this is you know, this is terrible. The, these people are treating us so badly. It's not fair. Um, it's whinging, and it doesn't. It's really it doesn't work. One of the issues, though, that has hovered over this discussion is precisely that question of electoralism, right? And when we, st- you know, we're we're four years out from an election, we're thinking about, um, you know, how exactly you, you know, and this is the old critique, the old left critique of electoralism is that precisely that these things attract so much attention and so much energy away from other things that they become poisonous to social movements. And I think that's a question that actually um, those people coming from the movements towards the Labour Party, as well as those people from the Labour Party who are saying, OK, we need to be more adjusted to social movements, need to look at and see whether that can be bridged. And I, I don't think the answer is there yet. Um, a couple of other things. Uh, I think one of the things that we should perhaps look at is, is think about whether there is a kind of social democratic majority in this country. I, I, I imagine that actually there probably is. And certainly that, that you know, some of the process, some of the electoral process here will be creating it, as, as you say. Um, but that, you know, this is a, a majority that has more or less, you know, sometimes it's a chauvinist so, social democratic majority. It's like, you know, Keynesianism in one country, I'm all right, Jack, why send foreign aid abroad? And that's a, a fight that, that that is a bit different. Um, Red UKIP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is a thing that it reminds me, you know, I was thinking this morning about something that Richard Titmus said years and years ago, uh, political sociologist, um, which is that uh, the, the, the defence of a welfare state depends on a certain kind of social altruism because the wealthier members of a, a society can always escape from, from pay because it's cheaper to insure themselves elsewhere. You know, that, you know so, so it, requir- it requires a change in political common sense, right? And, yeah, you know, I think it's reasonable to say that in this country there is a sense, there is a political sense that has survived decades, decades of, of, of neoliberalism, as they say, um, you know, <laughs> and that remains oriented towards that. And I think that's visible in the Corbyn election. Um, but if we're going to think about neoliberalism, let's think about what the neoliberals did in the 70s and early 80s, which is build, um, it's not conspiracy, it's just organised determination. They created a block of civil society groups, think tanks, academic networks, and so on. Now, you know, and that authorised that kind of doctrine. It helps that they exploited a big economic crisis, not dissimilar to the one that we have now, different causes, um, but, but, you know, similar in severity. Um, 
Now, this works better for the right than the left. The right can rely on a series of kind of authorizing powerful figures to say this is this is doctrine, this is how it works, and then sort of impose it from top down. Is there a left equivalent? What would be the left equivalent of building a different kind of political sense, different kind of political consensus in this country? Well, to my mind, um, that question is about what kind of institutions you create. But it's you know what is absolutely key is not to get bogged down in in what I think is rather ineffectual English kind of political common sense that comes from reading like Gramsci, uh, which is to say that, oh, you know, you don't don't get controversial or whatever. No, it requires a sharp end as much as a big umbrella. It requires action. You know, action proceeds and creates consciousness. So one of two opportunities here, possibilities, would you say it's better to have outrider organisations and institutions pushing this thing or people should be in the Labour Party trying to change it, which is a preferable strategy? <laughs> um I, I think both are necessary. I think both are necessary. I mean, you know, there's, 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 you know, I think those outrider institutions are really, really important, and but they, they have to be able to have a critical, um, but not hostile relationship to the Labour Party. Michael, you want to say that's... something? Uh, yeah, I was going to say. I think we're slightly confusing, or not confusing, but not making a distinction between an electoral strategy, which is building a block, building a progressive block in the country. And then sort of short-term tactics of how do you deal with the SNP, how do you do... Like the stuff that Linton Crosby is probably a genius at, which is these tactics. What do you do in the month leading up to the election? But the long-term strategy is something which Linton Crosby would probably be rubbish at as well. It's like it's a, it's a long-term strategy of changing narratives in a country, changing how people identify, building coalitions. It's what Podemos do very well in Spain. Um, it's what you've got to admit. It's what Ken Livingstone did well in um, when he was leading the GLC. You know, in the eighties. In the eighties, yeah. yes, but he did it well, and it meant that actually it was impossible for Blair, with all his resources and so on, mm. to get rid of him. And for him, and then in the end, Livingstone actually won as mayor again. You know, even though he wasn't the the Labour candidate. And well, I won't go on because you were talking. Well, there, was, about there was one other thing I wanted to challenge that I think is very common, this idea that electoralism corrupts social movements and it makes us less dynamic in our politics, etc., etc. I actually think it can do the opposite. I think if you're... Ta- the sort of tactics of what do we say about the SNP, yeah, that's probably not that a dynamic thing to throw in the middle of a social movement. But the, the question of how do we build an electoral block, how do you build a social majority, that means that you, you have to think, oh, who lives in this country? Uh, what do they want? Whereas if you're in a social movement which only deals with people in that social movement and people you get into direct contact with, you can ignore anyone that lives outside London as these reactionaries that keep landing us with Tory governments. And so I think there's a... Electoralism gives you this demand that you, you have to pay attention to everyone and what they want. And that raises sort of ambition and, you know, just... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't disagree with you there. I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's important. I mean, I would distinguish between sort of uh, engaging with elections and electoralism, um, which I, which I think is slightly two slightly yeah, different things. Yes, um, I mean, I, I, I agree with what you're saying about actually relating to the wider public could be a source of renewal and sort of, you know, uh, uh, ambition for mm. the social movements. But I think it also relates to maybe a strength of Jeremy and of Ken Livingston. Um, and it's not about magic. I think that it's it's actually about this um, both belief and capacity in speaking to, you know, ordinary people, you know, to working class people. Well, not ordinary. I mean, they're not ordinary, but they're extraordinary in lots of different ways. But 
people who are disenfranchised by the political system or who are not valued by the political system. And in a way, an element in his victory, which you didn't mention, Aaron, is that actually his speeches... They one key component to them of them is that they, he always, in a way, retold the stories of people's lives so that he echoed people's experiences. Now, in a way, to that's also visible in his ability to reach people through television. So, okay, the the press have been absolutely hostile, but you know, in a way, it's been a contrast. So, when he gets on telly, he's just really he speaks to people directly, a bit like Livingston did, and he's very convincing. So. You often meet people, just my neighbours and so on, who are not actually Corbyn Easters, and say, well, I saw him on telly the other day, and actually, he was really good. It's like, you know, people get all the blast from the press, and then they see him and think, yeah. And can I, can I if, the, if the social media and the, the canvassing, mass canvassing, and you've got to also remember that he has... 250,000 people who are yeah. willing to go on the streets, which Miliband didn't have and certainly the Tories don't have. The Tory party is is going to be massively divided, massively disillusioned, in a mess. The Labour Party, you know, is 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 full of energy and capacity that will be working all out for a Corbyn victory through talking to people directly. So that strength of his can be amplified in many different ways. I'm not I'm not sure that that's a strategy and I don't know what they're thinking, but certainly it's a strength. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. Uh, we've got 15 minutes left. We're talking Labour, Corbyn, six months in, strategy. What next? Prospects for victory, possibilities of defeat. Uh, responding to what you just said, uh, Hillary, about the, the public speaking. Incredible, right? 100 rallies during the last, uh, last summer. Amazing. And that was synergised really well with social media. They were recorded by a young... Many of them were recorded by a young man called Yanis Mendes. He did it for nothing. He was a huge, like, figure in Corbyn winning and that public image of Corbyn amongst those 250,000 people who voted, right? That was really key. Yet, Corbyn's now the leader of the opposition. This guy's not getting paid. And he's not making the videos anymore. Corbyn made this great speech yesterday to smaller mediums, businesses. I don't what was what was it? What uh, interest? Yeah, yeah, chambers of Commerce. Chambers of Commerce, yeah. right? Yeah, it wasn't the it wasn't the Federation Sport Business. Chambers of Commerce, apparently an outstanding speech, right? I can't find it on the BBC. I can't find it in politics. I can't find it in business. But we know that, mm. right? There's a report in the FT, but that's it. that's about it. Yeah. That's a serious newspaper, right? I mean, it was in the Huffington Post as well. But I mean, a real, you know, there wasn't national coverage of it, even though it's a pretty key speech by all accounts. That's when you need the videographer there, put it out on the social media assets. And my sense is that the, the real strengths of the Labour Party, I agree with you, the, the two outstanding strengths of Labour now, Corbyn and this membership, they're not being leveraged for whatever reason. The guy's a star, no doubt about it. The people around him, I think, are failing him. And just an extension of that, the ground war thing. You know, we had a year out from the last general election, Tom Watson saying, we're going to smash the Tories, and they should have. You know, you look at the Democrats compared to the Republicans in the US, the ground war, they nail them. They've got the unions, they've got everything right. They nail them. And that's about 6% in presidential elections, by the way, at the ground war. And Tom Watson was going, we're on the, we're going to take 100 seats, 80 seats. The Tories said nothing. Who had the better ground campaign? It was the Tories, organised by, of all people, Grant Shapps. You know, you think this guy's a mug. People look at Tom Watson like he's some sort of, you know, godfather. Well, Grant Shapps monstered him. He took him to the dry cleaners. So when people are like, oh, Tom Watson, the power behind the throne, well, if Grant Shapps can do him like a kipper, I, I think we're okay. But that ground campaign, I mean, it's not a given just because there's 250,000 people. 
it's there for the taking. The question is, will that happen? My concern is the people that surround Corbyn right now, some of them probably aren't good enough. And he's a nice guy and he's loyal. And I think one of his stronger traits, one of his more compelling traits, could turn out to be a weakness. James? Yeah, I mean, I want to pick up on some other things. It's interesting, the comparison with Ken Livingston. I mean, I think municipal socialism probably has a lot that could be revisited. But it does present one of the problems for the Labour Party at the moment, which is councils, actually. I mean, in, in Lambeth, very near here, you have councils sort of turfing people out of their homes, selling off massive amounts of council stock. Um, you have real, real serious problems with, with councils. Uh, really, you know, councils, of course, face huge cuts from, from DCLG, um, lots of very tight restrictions on their ability. But you have Labour councillors, um, many of whom are, are very, very signed up to, to a kind of uh, uh, Labour-led austerity. I think Peter John in Southwark here is a, a case in point, um, rather noisome and, and horrible creature. Um, so that's a real problem, the question of, of how the party relates to, to local government. And local government, you know, this is going to be a really, really big issue. You think adult social care here, you know, for a huge number of people. You know, if people, if people find their social care being cut from underneath them by a Labour council, how are they going to respond to an argument? You know, if, if, if their friends have been evicted from their house by a Labour council, how are they going to respond to an argument? Well, you know, uh, vote for the national guy, he'll, he'll, do, he'll do better. In a way, um, Jeremy, and, um, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald have placed themselves in a stronger position to put the focus on the Tories so that when all these crises are affecting people, their very strong anti-austerity position enables them to, to point the finger to the government as the true culprit. Whereas, you know, in the past, because the Labour Party accepted the austerity, in a way that led them to, in a way, mm. put the, accept that the burden should be on the shoulders of the of the councils. So I think there's yeah. a basis of a, in a way, it hasn't maybe been realised and there needs to be a stronger alliance between the National Labour Party and council leaders mm. to I mean, this, this... really, really, you know, be anti-austerity across the country yeah. and and nail the government for all the closures, the 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 you know the sort of attack on public yeah, I mean, services. it could be a really strong political strategy combine it mm. you know with as you say there are huge weaknesses in the Tory party over Europe there's not really been an attack on you know this is a wedge issue that could pry what is otherwise quite a cohesive ruling government apart other than that and I think it connects to the question mm. of, of of local government is this question of you know these people you know you say who, who are willing to go to the streets are they willing to go to the streets the problem with a lot of the people who signed up and I you know, don't blame them for it I mean god you know I, I you know I find it hard enough to go to, to meetings <laughs> on a you know on a Wednesday night when I've been working all day you know it's it, you know the question of people's energy and their ability to do this stuff that's a big big question and it looks like that that question of, of people who are say aligned to momentum whether they're interacting well with sort of local constituency parties and it's very boring stuff often but, but, but quite done. important. I think there's a lesson here from the Scottish independence, the radical independence campaign in Scotland where, you know, and they weren't a party so all the, the mass canvassing the reaching out to people can be done using the tools and sort of you know, culture of the social movement. So I went to a mass canvas in Glasgow I wasn't a member of any party but I was just told through social media where to turn up mm in the gorbals and there were like you know 200 people who then you know fanned out across the streets of um, of, of gorbals glasgow and and argued with people about the just, referendum just just one thing is is of course that that this is important because the, the Labour Party has software that tells you Momentum wants to do a voter registration campaign, dubious of its actual actual use. Um, very, very hard thing to do. Um, 
the party has software that tells you exactly which houses to target. Mm. Other thing here, and in terms of software and funding, is of course the trade union bill. Trade union mm. bill really, really set to decimate Labour Party funding uh, mm. and its national operation. Doesn't look like much of the stuff coming out of the Lords Committee on it is going to is going to be helpful there. Um, really, really key question between that, between cuts to short money, proposed cuts of 19% to short money, which is the money that funds oppositions in Parliament and their offices, uh, between that, boundary redrawing and uh, and, yeah, and this, the cut to trade union funding, real, real serious financial questions for the Labour Party, whether they are simply able to mount a national campaign. And, and that, that, that's a big deal. I think to go back to the idea of energy for a ground campaign, I do think there was one, one thing that some of the left got slightly wrong after the election victory was like 300,000 people voted Jeremy Corbyn. This is a new, huge social movement. And then not all of them opened the email when you sent them the email to say, come to the next meeting. Not that many of them came to the next meeting, but they could do. But to, to re-energise people, I think it's not so much getting the information out about where the voter registration drive is, because it's that information is getting out and not that many people are turning up. I think what why the radical independence campaign in Scotland went huge was because you were part of a political campaign that looked like it could win. And if there's anything that demotivates a movement which is uh, vinculated like around <clears throat> a, a political leader, the one thing that can demotivate that movement is if you lose confidence in that leader. And I feel like for, for that energy to be refound, what we need is a vision of how this is actually going to be made a success and how we can be part of something successful, basically. Picking up a few of these points now, uh, ground campaign, media stuff. James, what you said about the trade union bill, money. The Tories in 2005 were £28 million in debt. This was the real... I mean, people forget how bad these... I mean, how screwed up the Tory party was until very recently, right? Very old membership, couldn't do much for ground campaign in that respect, but if you've got money, that doesn't matter so much, right? They didn't have money either. Very few MPs, very little public support, little little sort of grasp on public sentiment on a range of issues. I mean, you look at William Hague in 2001, they just look weird. They look like kind of UKIP now. They just kind of look, this is so far away from where most people are at. That was until very recently, right? Clearly lots changed since then. Lord Feldman's been in charge of fundraising since 2005. Meantime, he's raised one quarter of a trillion pounds. Two, sorry, one quarter of a billion pounds. Imagine. imagine. <laughs> That'd be the third Whoa. of UK public spending. Imagine, wow. That would be even Mussolini would, you know, rife and stuff. Quarter of a billion pounds, 250 million pounds, right? So from a position of 28 million pound in debt to, that's uh, obviously the autocorrect on Evernote, it's gone wrong there, hasn't it? To 250 million, a quarter of a billion pounds, that's really sensational. That's what's paying for the Facebook advertising, like I said, 100 grand a month in the run to the last election. That's what's paying for the direct mail. That's what's paying for the ground campaigns. It's called Team 2015. By the way, they weren't Tory party members. They were young people that were offered free drink and curries and were trying to get laid. Grant Shapps is on record as saying this. I mean, it's pretty gross, right? <laughs> it's pretty gross. But that's what, that was what their ground campaign was driven by. 100,000 people signed up to that online, by the way. 100,000 people, a lot of young people. We don't know about this stuff. Just for curry and sex with Tories. <laughs> Again, they signed the emails. Whether they did, you know, there's a sort of ladder. There's a ladder country. of things here, and it's difficult to discern how far people went up. But so, given all of that, given the trade union bill, you're looking at Sanders over the pond. Three and a half million individual contributions, more than that now. That was what it was like a month ago. 
Yeah. Trade union bill, no money. Tories lose some money. You'd think there would be incentives, right? You look at, I mean, I, some things in economic theory I'd sort of agree with. Like, people do things when there are heavy incentives. You know, the Democrats get really good at social media in the middle of the 2000s because they were in opposition. The Republicans didn't have an incentive to do that. The Democrats do. That's why they get so good at it so quickly. You'd think Labour would have incentives to get really good at social media, get really good at crowdfunding, because there's going to be no other way for them to literally, you know, compete. Maybe this raises the question of the Labour Party as distinct from Corbyn and that Mm. he, during his campaign, he was brilliant, or not him, but his team, was very good at both um, crowdfunding and social media. Now he's... He's in the grip of the Labour Party, and that's, I think, constraining him and hasn't got that openness to talent and to to people outside the party, which is often where the talent is. That's one aspect of it, and I don't disagree with you, and I think that clearly Labour's operation, central operation, is going to be dreadful, right? Look at those mugs they did. It's just terrible. It's just terrible, right? Mm. But... You know, there were people, the JC for PM social media assets, two people and some volunteers. They got six million eyeballs on one day. They got 10 million eyeballs on the night of the Syria vote. They were a huge influence in changing MPs' opinions, right? In the United States, the two people running those assets, they would have been the first people on the payroll. Here, nobody even answers their emails. Why is that? It's because the people around Corbyn right now have a particular view of politics. They come from a very particular tradition. I'm not criticising them. They did very well, for instance, in getting the unions on board, right? He needed that in last last summer. But that's not everything, and it's certainly not enough to win a general election, especially when, actually, the unions are to the right of the membership. Yeah, we know that. And actually, they're very risk-averse and a whole lot of things. So... I mean, I just don't know what they're thinking. And also, you know, in terms of how risk-averse they are, this is an incredible fact. Some people may have watched the uh, interview with Corbyn last summer. 80,000 views on YouTube. You put Corbyn interview on YouTube, second or third thing that comes up. One of his very, very close people to him said, please don't share this on social media. He looks bad. It was the best interview of him on the internet. <laughs> you know? So th- these people are pretty stupid, you know? And I think, yes, some of it is the Labour Party... I really question some of these personnel. And also, of course, there is a lack of money to hire more people, right? Ed Balls can have three advisors because PwC are paying for it. Very limited money for him, right? So it's a huge problem. But the openness of that campaign, I think, is being lost because the team isn't there. Uh, Final comments, 30 seconds each. We'll start with you, Michael. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) I hadn't prepared my final comment. Uh, Yeah. I think he needs... We need... need a leadership that's getting more on point, basically. I think that's where the energy isn't can't come just from the bottom in a spontaneous way. I think we need to be seeing how Corbyn and his team have a strategy for winning that social block. I think that's the main game in town. Um, and I, I kind of agree that the partly the problem with the personnel is that these people came from a strategy that was never really about taking power. They'd always assumed they never would. Mm-hmm. And they're... Even outside the Labour Party, it's not as if there's this huge gang of people from the left knocking on the door saying, we've got the, we've got the strategy to help you win, which I suppose is also my way of saying, let's not be too hard on them because it's kind of the whole left who yeah. needs to get their house in order. Hillary. Yes, I think we've got to do a lot. I think it's always a danger you know, when you're critical of putting a lot of energy into the critique when actually a lot of this is things that we could be doing. You know, I'm involved in Hackney, Momentum. I could be 
doing much more there to to make sure we are reaching out. I mean, I think the the sort of um, slogans, as it were, are building on Jeremy's strengths, which are openness, pluralism, a belief in the people. And if we can make that our strategy from the outside as well, you know, people in the outline, outlying, I can't remember your phrase, but the outlying institutions. Outriders. Outriders, yeah. whether it's Red Pepper or Navara or... Um, fix, you know, all the people that are trying to influence public opinion. We should be taking that job on and then drawing Jeremy in rather than putting too much emphasis on the critique. On that note, thank you so much, guys. Uh, Any comments, any responses, just go on that hashtag, hashtag NavarraFM. My name's Aaron Bastani. We'll see you again same time, same place next week. Bye.